Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The holidays are here, and so is another Midnight Myth Christmas special. Put on the kettle, light a fire, grab your coziest blanket, and settle in as we unpack one of the greatest Christmas stories and greatest movies of all time, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. For more, visit us on Apple Podcasts, on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, on Facebook, and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also at MidnightMyth.com. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year to all. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, pop culture you name it, we talk about it, and today is our Midnight Myth Christmas Spectacular. As always, I am very excited to be here today, and I'm even more excited to talk about Christmas storytelling. It's a time that only comes once a year, and it comes so quick and then it's gone, but I love Christmas so very much. And I, before we begin, I just want to take this moment and wish everybody, whatever winter celebration you celebrate, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, happy it. Happy it and just- <laughs> Happy all of it. Happy all of it. So much love and good cheer. And here we are for another Midnight Myth episode. As you could tell by our very special intro, today we are going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Life. Of all Christmas media, so that would include TV shows, movies, books, It's a Wonderful Life is absolutely my favorite piece of Christmas media of all time. That's great. And for a variety of reasons, I mean, we've all seen it numerous, numerous times, but I think this episode we are going to be discussing a few things. One, it has a fascinating history. Yes. So we're going to talk about how this movie got made, some of its challenges, some of its pitfalls that it had in its time, how it evolved from a movie that was at its time a total flop and turned into the holiday classic that it is today. We're going to be talking also a lot about its themes and its messaging. To me, the central question that I want to get to is what makes a great Christmas movie? Right. And why not look at, in my view, the best Christmas movie of all time to answer that? And I think as we are scrolling through the internet here, there's a lot of chatter out there about what the best Christmas movie is, what makes a Christmas movie. And I think this is our way to lend to that and lend to that voice. And uh, I couldn't be more happier to talk about it. 
I'm really excited to talk about it too because I have a very deep personal love for It's a Wonderful Life. And I think a lot of us growing up found that, uh, you know, kind of personal connection to it, whether it was with Mary whispering in George's deaf ear, George Paley, I'll love you till the day I die. Or whether it was watching, you know, how this character navigated the pitfalls of his life and how selflessly he put himself out there. Or whether we just fell in love with Clarence Oddbody or Zuzu. Uh, every single one of us has a connection to It's a Wonderful Life, who has seen it. And I think it's truly special for that in the way that it connects with, uh, with especially as an American story uh, and kind of gives us a blueprint for who we are at Christmas time. When you were introducing this, uh, you said some things about how Christmas comes only once a year and what a great time it is. And you're right, it does only come once a year. Uh, and the challenge that we all face is how to hold on to the kind of cheer and the kind of radiance and the kind of joy that we create around this time. And I think great Christmas stories challenge us to do that. So if you listen to our Christmas special last year on A Christmas Carol, you hear us talk about Dickens trying to create an understanding of the past, the present, and the future that leads us all to be more like an evergreen tree that doesn't shed its leaves, that remains green all year round. And I think It's a Wonderful Life challenges us in the same way, just like every other good Christmas story. So that's kind of how I enter this conversation about what makes a good Christmas story. Does it challenge us to be more evergreen? Does it challenge us to find a sustainable way to be good, to be joyous, to appreciate, and to love? And that's what It's a Wonderful Life does. So as we jump into unpacking its histories and unpacking its themes, that's my challenge going forward, is how do we become more evergreen? How do we carry Christmas with us all the year? Wow, okay, let's begin. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, so let's talk first about the history. We mentioned that it was directed by a man named Frank Capra, who's a pretty fascinating guy. He was a successful movie director, and then World War II happened. And like many people in uh, show business, they wanted to contribute to the war effort. So he ended up helping create American propaganda to help spread the message of the war, to help uh, create the narrative that the war is about a great America versus a fascist right. evil empire, and also help sell war bonds. Yeah. So it was the way that he contributed. After this, the first project that he made after the war was um, It's a Wonderful Life. It was one of the few movies where he actually had a lot to do with the screenplay. It was an adaptation from the book. The book's name is Blank. The Greatest Gift. Thank you. I forgot the name. Yeah. And um, he actually created a studio to fund and make this movie. This was his sort of magnus opus. Is that? Magnum opus. Magnum yeah. opus. Thank you. This is his, in his view, his crowning achievement. Interestingly enough, the movie ended up going horribly over budget. It ended up planned with a $1 million budget. It ended up costing $3.7 million, and it only made $3.3 million in box office sales. Wow. The studio that Frank Capra founded to fund and make this movie went bankrupt as a result of this. And Frank Capra was never really, again, a mainstream success. Yeah, he kind of fell off the radar after this. He made five movies after It's a Wonderful Life, and all of them kind of went by with a little bit of a hmph. Right. Um, and 
part of the reason for that is after he made this movie and it lost so much money and his studio folded, no studio really wanted to give him a large treasure chest of funds to make other movies. Right. So this was his greatest crowning achievement in his eyes. Clearly, history has proven that correct, but it also was such a financial and uh, box office failure that it almost ruined his career. Yeah, and in many ways, it was a critical failure, too. There was a, a very mixed reception, and of course, it did get vindicated by many uh, Oscar nominations, but it didn't win very much, and it was seen as overly sentimental, overly schmaltzy, in a time that we like to look back on and think that was very gauzy and very uh, you know, pro-American and not complex and very black and white in its morality, it was seen as too... Uh, too black and white in its morality. So the other great movie that came out that year was The Best Years of Our Lives, uh, a William Wyler film, which ended up sweeping the Oscars in all the categories that It's a Wonderful Life was also nominated in, which is a wonderful movie, has not stood the test of time in the way that It's a Wonderful Life has. It still holds up. It's still excellent. But I could say that in a crowd of people and more people would have seen It's a Wonderful Life or heard of It's a Wonderful Life versus Best Years of Our Lives. But that was a movie, like many that were coming out at its time, that were deeply cynical. It was about um, you know soldiers coming home from the war and dealing with the fallout, dealing with the grief and the trauma of having been in war. And so it dealt in deeper ambiguities and uh, grittier uh, realities of war than It's a Wonderful Life did, even though uh, It's a Wonderful Life has come through as a very, very interesting um, character study uh, today. So it's interesting to look back on what else was happening in that time, what else was being seen, and see that It's a Wonderful Life was actually seen as too uh, simple, too straightforward, and too, uh, too gauzy. Well, in terms of the attitude of the nation and the entertainment that they wanted post-World War II, digging into the history of this movie, we like to think of the generation that came right. back from World War II. We call them the, the, the greatest, the greatest generation. generation. Well, the cost of treasure and blood and sacrifice to win the war left a cynical and darker frame. Absolutely. Wars cost a ton in so many ways, in both, both material and spiritual and because of that, we saw an emergence of darker films really holding the public's imagination. Yeah, we see the birth of film noir. In comes Frank Capra wanting to combat this cynicism with one of the sweetest movies ever made. I mean mm -hmm. that sweet not in terms of flavor, but in terms of emotion, yeah. in terms of kindness. Absolutely. A movie that preaches uh, the, value, the greatest values that we can learn from things like organized religion um, the the common man, the the joy of the small, you know, yeah. the small town and the small ten mentality that many people just weren't really in the. They mood did for. not have the appetite for it. So interestingly enough, in 1974, the studio that had the copyright for "It's a Wonderful Life" forgot to file for it, and it fell into public domain. Yeah, and this is where the movie got its rebirth. Because oh gosh, I didn't know this. Once it fell into, yeah, a clerical yeah. error to not file for the copyright, it entered into the public domain, and suddenly net TV networks could just play it since it was a Christmas movie and people love it, so it just went everywhere because it cost nothing to play. And in that, it got its rebirth. 
people started watching it in the 70s. Yeah. And in that time, people started falling in love with it. And it, it then took its rightful place as the classic Christmas movie that it is today. Other fun things about its history, in 1993, NBC sued to get the copyright back, got it back, and is now under copyright by NBC. So they can ultimately dictate who wow. gets to play it, when and where, which is why currently it's not on TV as much as it was when I was a little boy. When yeah, it used to be all day Christmas Day from midnight to midnight. It was playing over and over and over on, again. On every channel. On every channel. <laughs> it doesn't do that anymore. It still gets played a lot, yeah. but, but it doesn't do that anymore because NBC now has the rights to it. Another fun fact, uh, to rewind back to 1947, uh, on its initial reception, the FBI had a few things to say about it. They released a memo stating, quote, with regard to this picture, It's a Wonderful Life, redacted, stated in substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by the communists, end quote. So the FBI was very upset about how socialistic and pro-communist the film was and how anti-capitalist and anti-banker uh, the George Bailey's story was. So a uh, very poor reception there, but really interesting to look back at this piece of Americana that's so venerated that was actually denounced by the FBI as communist sympathizing. That is so cool. It's so, crazy. Let's let, you know, I'd like to peel the layers of that onion a little bit. Mm -hmm. And let's pause and ask ourselves a question. Why would the FBI think this movie is sympathetic to communism? And I think that is an interesting jumping off point to extrapolate some of the themes. So the movie is about the character George Bailey. It is about him at the end of his rope contemplating suicide. He has had his, um, he is running the building and loan in a town called Bedford Falls. And he's constantly butting up against Mr. Potter. And there are two successful business people in all of Bedford Falls, George Bailey and Mr. Potter. And success is measured by kind of different metrics when it comes to the two of them. But they are at odds. And George Bailey is the hero. Potter is the antagonist. Potter wants the building and loan because he wants everything. And George is there to stop him. But we get more than just why Potter and George are butting heads. We right. see all of George's life. And at every critical juncture, at every crossroads that he is at, he's chose service to Bedford Falls over his own personal individual desires and wants. He, this is a man that wanted to go to college, explore the world, he wanted to be a famous architect or urban planner designing and building things. He was a man of high ideals and high vision, high passion and drive. And right on the cusp of him about to leave Bedford Falls, his father unexpectedly dies of a stroke. Right. And this is the opportunity that Mr. Potter is waiting for. Mr. Potter will use this to dissolve the building and loan unless George Bailey steps in to run it. And what does George Bailey do? He gives up his dream the money that he was going to use to go to college, he gives to his little brother and he runs the building and loan and he builds his life there. So a lot of summary there, but I think important to highlight 
that there is a central economic argument and moral argument, I'd say, about economics yeah. happening yeah. in this movie. I think it's worth understanding. And to do that, I would like to go backwards even further, if that, if you'll permit me, a, a Please, long, a long yeah. point. So Americans' economic system as we know it, we currently call it capitalism. It is birthed out of an area and time called the Enlightenment and out of a primarily many economists, but a... Um, a man, a Scottish philosopher by the name of Adam Smith. Right. In 1776, important year for America, he wrote something called an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. In short, called the wealth of nations. And it's the building blocks of the economic system we have today. In it, he is arguing against a system called mercantilism. Mercantilism is when there is a merchant class that based off of the patronage of a monarch controls the flow of goods. So if you want to get tea from England to Massachusetts, a merchant appointed by the king is the one that transports it. The cost for that tea is ultimately going to be set by this merchant class in conjunction with the crown. And this was the bedrock of America's argument that it had with Great Britain that led to the founding of our nation, is that it wanted the goods to flow and goods to be traded without interference from the merchant class. Right. And Adam Smith, he had this theory called the invisible hand. And what the invisible hand is, is that markets, when left unregulated and un, um, unmanipulated by uh, monarchs, would guide to the greatest good naturally. And that when individuals pursue their own self-interest above all, ultimately the community will benefit. So let me give you a simple example of what Adam Smith was talking about. I want to be a butcher. I want to be a butcher because there isn't a butcher in the town that I live in and I know how to be a butcher and I think I can make a lot of money. So in order for me to make a lot of money as a butcher, I want to have the best meat at the best price possible. And if I do this, not only will I individually get rich, the town will be fed because somebody is there supplying the town with the necessary things they need to eat. And that would be an example of the invisible hand. You flash forward into the end of World War II, there were two central economic systems at play. The capitalism that we have today and Marxism or communism. Um, and those two Economic systems manifested in different nations battling for control over the global economy. As we know, capitalism ultimately won. In that, when capitalism defeats communism as the global economic system, there were plenty of societies that wanted to figure out, <clears throat> where do we go from here? And around in the 70s, right at the time that we see the emergence of It's a Wonderful Life back into the public consciousness and becoming the classic that it is today, we have a new economic philosophy built off the fall of communism called neoliberalism. Wow. Okay. So this happens in the 70s yeah. while communism is failing and ultimately in the 80s it fails. And we have this new capitalist thought. And I'm going to uh, read a quote about neoliberalism that I think describes it better by a, name, by a man named David Harvey from the Oxford Press. Neoliberalism. The doctrine that market exchange is an ethic in itself, capable of acting as a guide for all human actions, has become dominant in both thought and practice throughout much of the world since 1970 or so. 
Its spread has depended upon a reconstitution of state powers such that privatization, finance, and market process are emphasized. State intervention in the economy are minimalized, while the obligations of the state to provide for the welfare of its citizens are diminished, end quote. So we have the building blocks of Adam Smith, the collapse and decay of communism, the reintroduction of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism stands to date as the global economic system. Most states, even communist China, adapts neoliberalist principles to some degree in the institution and how they manage their economy. And at the same time that this is happening, we see It's a Wonderful Life coming back into the consciousness. Wow. How do you explain that? So in many ways, unintentionally, I think we see a deep, deep critique of neoliberalist ideals at play in It's a Wonderful Life. As though it kind of anticipated this. Yeah, yes, and I, right. don't, and I don't think Frank Capro, he wanted to tell a beautiful story about uh, good, simple people and uh, a story about religion and Christmas and the enduring human spirit, which he did admirably and succeeded. Yes. But in the time where it's coming about, neoliberalism is now in its heyday and its dominance, which we still are. At the core of neoliberalist and capitalist thought is the individual. Yeah. And the idea that the individual is ultimately responsible for his or her fate, that you have the power to determine who you're going to be. And what we see in It's a Wonderful Life is a man who fate has fate will have it is not able to actualize or self-determine. He's not able to be the man he wants to be. Why? Because he serves something other than his self-interest. He puts the interest of others ahead of his own. And in this, when we get to the point of divine intervention, when Clarence comes and shows a pocket universe, if you will, where George Bailey never Never existed, existed, we see what happens when self-interest is allowed to run unchecked and unstopped by uh, more communal and altruistic thinking and business practices. And what do we see? We see Harry, George's brother, never got the chance to grow up because he died. We see Mary, his wife, an introverted bookworm who can't even talk to people on the street. God forbid a spinster librarian, but go on. We see Nick, the bartender, in a drunken gin joint devoid of compassion and niceties and gentlemanliness. We see Mr. Gower being uh, abused by everyone that he encounters because George was never there to stop him poisoning the little boy on accident in grief. We see at every level the decay, the moral decay and rot of this town. The town is undoubtedly richer when it's Pottersville. It is. So the bar is packed. It's more prosperous, yes. So Nick is cashing in, making a ton of money in a packed bar. But it's not just about everyone's self-interest. When there's no one there to safeguard and look after the community, the community itself crumbles into Pottersville, crumbles into moral decay. And in that, we see that sometimes determining your own fate Achieving your own ambitions and dreams is not the right thing to do. Self-interest doesn't always produce the greatest outcome and the greatest good. Right, right. 
And that movie has this baked in to the economics of Bedford Falls. And without the Baileys to stand against selfishness of the Potters, we see a community that's completely, completely decimated, even though it's richer, is morally decimated and by far worse off. There's an incredible tension between the neoliberalist drive or you know, the, the, the drive to make your own life, to pursue your great adventure and the, you know, the needs of the community, the needs of the individual versus the needs of the community. Um, it's interesting. I think this is a great segue into one of the things I was researching when looking at It's a Wonderful Life a little bit closer because George Bailey is an ultimate tragic figure, right? He is a character who, uh, constantly puts others before his own needs, even though he has grandiose dreams. Uh, there are many figures that we see, I think, in pop culture who uh, are relegated to being caretakers and are not given the, uh, you know, the writer's courtesy of having big and grandiose dreams. They know that they are uh, just side players in a, a great an epic drama, but George feels like the hero of his own narrative. And therefore the uh, perceived failure of his ability to actualize his dreams is that much worse. But he is to me the caretaker of Bedford Falls, even though it takes him a while to realize it. So what are the things that happens to him in his life? We're seen, we're shown these in flashbacks when Clarence is learning uh, about the man that he has to go and save. The first thing that we learn about George is that he saved his brother Harry from drowning, that he jumped into an icy lake to save his brother, and that he lost his hearing as a result in one ear. So from the very beginning, George does something selfish and is physically punished for it. You mean selfless? Selfless, sorry. Later, we know that he discovers that his grieving boss, Mr. Gower, has inadvertently poisoned a child's prescription, and he intervenes to stop it. Later, he learns of his father's death right before he leaves for his world tour and for his you know, college education, and then he has to take over the family business right as he's falling in love with Mary. So he's pulled away from a very exciting and uh, romantic night with Mary to take over the family business and has to leave his dreams behind. He gives his college tuition away. He you know, gives Harry this chance to get the college education. And then when Harry gets a better job from his father-in-law, George is, is robbed of that uh, you know, ability to have the mantle passed on. He gets stuck into this rut of continuing to be the caretaker. So I was interested in understanding uh, more of the psychology of the caretaker or the caregiver in the context of George Bailey. And I actually found some interesting uh, commentary on uh, the phenomenon of caretaker burnout, which I think helps us to characterize the pain that George is going through in realizing that he has, uh, he, according to his own yardstick, according to his own measures, failed as a man and what leads him to contemplate suicide and so I found an article called Caring for the Caretaker, a Nursing Process Approach, uh, and it's by Elaine R. Bloniage in the uh, Journal of Creative Nursing. So I was really interested in this because uh, 
I, I'm not a nurse. I don't have a whole lot of expertise in nursing, but this nursing process that she describes is what nurses would use on their own patients. And she describes uh, teaching nurses to diagnose themselves and use this process on themselves as a way to mitigate caretaker burnout. So she diagnoses the problem at the beginning of this article. The problem is that nurses will begin their careers passionate and attuned to the needs of others, but it's an extremely stressful career that if they don't take proper care of themselves can lead to burnout and compassion fatigue. So she says that the most important thing that you can do is to institute a system of self-care. Uh, she talks about self-assessment, determining what that self-care looks like for yourself, and systematizing that self-evaluation, looking at yourself and saying, hey, am I still okay, or am I falling apart right now? She talks about planning, analyzing your data and making a plan, defining your goals, deciding what needs to change to get there, and being realistic about setting priorities. She talks about implementation, taking vacations, joining committees that will help you to affect change in your community or your work uh, environment, choosing positivity over ne negativity whenever you can, evaluation, uh, analyzing and defining what your core values are, and whenever making a decision, asking, am I making a decision from my core values, and then evaluating uh, whether or not you are staying in line with those values, and then reflection. So she talks about implementing this process that you would use whenever uh, helping a patient to recover from a physical disease or an ailment of some kind, and using it on yourself as a system of self-care that constantly asks, what are my values? Am I in line with them? Am I falling apart? And how can I get back in line? Uh, which I think when we look at George Bailey, if we place those structures upon him, perhaps we could have had a different outcome within this story. Uh, George Bailey... Go on. I'm, who, I'm, I'm intrigued. So George Bailey, as the, uh, as the character who everyone can lean on, as the keystone that if you pull it out, so many lives fall apart. Mr. Gower's life falls apart. Nick's life completely changes. There is no Harry to save you know, so many men in a transport. Uh, there is, there's no more Bedford Falls if you remove George Bailey from this. He is the caretaker. He is the person that everybody leans on. When you are that caretaker, when you are the nurse who uh, evaluates Bedford Falls and helps to keep the community healthy and helps to keep them housed and happy and fed, who is the caretaker for you? And the answer is sometimes you have to be the caretaker for yourself. Uh, so in that way, It's a Wonderful Life, for me, becomes this anthem of the triumph of self-care, right? If, if George Bailey checks in with himself more frequently going forward, perhaps he can avoid this burnout. If uh, George Bailey stops to understand what is so wonderful about his life, if he looks at the little things and says, my core values are family is the most important, or my core values are, uh, you know, there is a moral center to Bedford Falls and doing the right thing for 
uh, you know, the greater good is the greatest good I can do, then hopefully George Bailey can create a more sustainable framework for moving forward because he is always going to make the selfless choice, right? He's always going to do the, uh, the thing that puts others' needs before himself. But It's a Wonderful Life says it's okay to stop for a second and thank yourself. It's okay to stop for a second and do something good for yourself because otherwise you're going to end up on that bridge. Interesting thought. Yeah, yeah, I'm, chew- I'm chewing on it, you know. L- let me ask, and, and making sure I understand your point, are you saying that George Bailey does not take care of himself well and that's what? Yes, yeah, hmm. I am saying that. Um, because George Bailey is burned out at the end. He is ready to say, my life should end because I have failed these people and failed myself, if hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it does. It's interesting that you internalize his narrative, where I read it, and I don't think that I totally agree with you, but I always read this as it's the external world that forces his hand. It is the invisible hand of the market that works against George and his own desires. You know, for example, George wants to be selfish. George wants to go to college and leave Bedford Falls. He just can't because his father died and he ended up having to, it's either give the business to Potter, who he knows is demonstrably evil and bad, or sit there and stem the tide. You know, he wants to spend the night with Mary after the uh, the, the pool scene and, and the, the thing, but his father gets sick, so he can't. He wants hit Harry to take over the family business so he can finally move on and get a job doing something that he wants. But Harry has a better opportunity in front of him. So it's to me, it's always about these external circumstances. He runs his business as well as he can run it with the finances that he has, but his incompetent and foolish uncle loses $8,000. And in 1947, that's a huge amount of money, $8,000. Yeah, it's like $100,000 today. You know, he just misplaces it and hands it over to Potter and doesn't know what happened to it, forcing this crisis. Right before then, that right before that money gets stolen, George is pretty happy and content. His brother's coming back from the war. There's going to be a parade for him. He's laughing about how broke he is. And then, boom, in comes his uncle losing the money, precipitating this this massive crisis. So, yeah, I I totally agree. He does need to go through self-care. And in the end, what Clarence teaches him, and ultimately the value of friends, the value of family, the idea that success is not measured in your bank account, it's not measured in a ledger of accomplishments, it's measured in the amount of people that love you, which is why Harry calls him the, the richest, richest man, man in town. town. Uh, I don't disagree with you. I, I do think that in a lot of cases, it is an external force that is uh, you know, forcing uh, George Bailey's hand. But if we look at certain decisions that are made, obviously the, uh, his father's stroke is something that places him pretty much between a rock and a hard place. He has to make mm. the decision that he makes. But when we look at... Uh, at Harry's uh, job opportunity. It's not the same situation where Harry's fallen into a lake and he has to be saved. That has to happen. George has to do that. But when Harry's got 
a good job opportunity that we know from Ruth is not much money, but is probably an opportunity that he can move up from and can be happy in. George does not have to allow that. They had an agreement. Harry said, you know, I, I never told her I would take it. I promise you something. You've been holding the bag for me. It's my turn. George could absolutely still force him into that position. But he makes the selfless choice in that case because he's George Bailey. I Not see. because of a, you know, a an external force that says he has to take this job, but because George Bailey, like, internally takes after his father. You know, he believes that all you take with you is what you have given away. So there is, there's no way he could, he could make Harry do that because uh, of his internal compass. And then when we look at uh, Uncle Billy losing the money, George could absolutely be like, Uncle Billy lost the money, Uncle Billy's going to jail. And he almost does. He's he like, one of us is one going point. to jail and it's not going to be me. But he can't do that because he's George Bailey, because he's Peter Bailey's son, because yep. he's the caretaker of Bedford Falls. He could never let somebody else uh, you know, feel suffering if he can take that suffering on for them. And that, I think, is, is what I'm, I'm getting to, is that uh, as the caretaker of Bedford Falls, as the caretaker of the Bailey family, George assumes the suffering of other people. From that very first moment when he saves his brother and then goes partially deaf because of it, he has accepted suffering as the reward for selflessness. And what I hope is the turn that he will take after this is to accept that uh, that there can be rewards and to allow people to reward him, to listen when someone says, you're the richest man in town, to appreciate when someone buys him a suitcase and to even bless and love the knob on his staircase that comes off every time he runs up the stairs and to love the petals that fell off of Zuzu's rose. So that's the... Uh, that's the hope that comes from the end of It's a Wonderful Life, is saying the caretaker who assumes trauma, who assumes suffering on behalf of others, should be allowed those rewards and hopefully will have those rewards in the future. I get it. Yeah, I, 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 I totally get what you're, you're putting out. If you're going to make these choices, you also have an obligation of yourself not to completely fall apart. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and you need to find a, a way to make sure that it does, like, that it and which I think also leads into another important theme of the, the yeah. message, which is to define success on your own terms. Yeah. And I can relate personally, you know, my many of my ambitions and life goals that I had for external career focused things failed. And in moments, my weakest moments, I feel like George Bailey before Clarence, where it's like, I have not been successful in the things that I've endeavored to do. And you have to, in those in those moments, reflect and ask yourself, what is the most important thing? And the most important thing is, is I come home to a beautiful house with the most amazing woman in the world, my podcast co-host, Laurel, and that we love each other and celebrate and support life and support and keep each other up. And so the idea that you didn't get to go to place X when you wanted to, you didn't make the amount of money that you wanted to, you know, it's important that one scene that I'd like to bring out, one of my favorite scenes that I think highlights both your point and my point, mm -hmm. is when Mr. Potter tries to buy off George. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. 
Mr. Potter realizes that George is more successful and he's keeping the building and loan open. And eventually, at some point, he's probably going to be a profitable businessman and that this is a threat to him. Right. So his response is, you know what? I'm going to bring George in and I'm going to sit him down and I'm going to tell George the self-interested version of reality. And that self-interested version is that, George, you've put others ahead of yourself and you've suffered because of it, as you have said, and you've seen people that aren't as smart as you, that aren't as capable of you, achieve more material wealth and more material success. They've traveled and seen the places that you wanted to see. And if you were a common, ordinary, everyday yokel, this would be fine. But you're not. You're George mm. Bailey. You're exceptional. Come and join me, and I will pay you a salary hitherto unimaginable for George Bailey. Oh, yeah. He offers him like $300,000 in today's money. Correct. He offers yeah. him wealth, the ability to travel and see the world, to see the cities, the ability to have the funds and resources to actualize his big ideas. And essentially, he's appointing George as his successor, because Potter doesn't have children. Right? Potter is just a man sitting there on a pile of money and whatnot. Well, you know, why? Why fight George Bailey when you can just absorb him into your self-interested philosophy and finally give him the things that he wants? It's a very good strategy. And it's significant that George is very tempted. George wants to say yes. And then when he shakes Potter's hand, he looks at his hand and he wipes it on the coat and he's realizing that all of the things that Potter is offering him come at the sacrifice of the community because Potter is going to suck the community dry with poor housing, with uh, loans that people can't pay back. He's going to have to do the bidding of a man who will foreclose on a family at Christmas if they are a week behind on their rent. Right. And he can't do it. And he says, no, I'm going to stand in resistance to this. And if you make that choice... And it's the right choice to make. One, it is a scathing rebuke of both neoliberalism and Adam Smith economics. Right. Self-interest is not always what serves the community best. In fact, sometimes it will hurt the community. Most times it will hurt the community. And two, that if you make the, de the, the decision that will cause you and your family to be in a Worse economic choice, you do have to take care of yourself and your loved ones with that as well. Yeah. You do have to, like like you say, have some sort of way to make sure that you don't get to the point where you have to have an angel come down from heaven to save your life. Right. Yeah. And George, in many ways, is, you know, to, to go back to what we talked about with our last Christmas episode, the anti-Scrooge, right? So the story of A Christmas Carol is about a miser who hoards his money, very much a Mr. Potter type as well, um, who doesn't even spend it on comforts, who has no family to, to dote upon, who has no friends, uh, and who acts purely out of self-interest. So he is an obviously bad guy, obvious villain. Uh, and even the FBI called out how much Mr. Potter was a Scrooge type to make him look like uh, you know, the, the classic banker villain. It's such an archetype. But It's a Wonderful Life almost says that being a George Bailey can be as destructive to your health, to your mental health. Uh, being someone who acts so much out of selflessness that you completely sacrifice your own interests 
can be just as dangerous. So it doesn't say that George Bailey shouldn't be selfless. It doesn't say that George Bailey shouldn't act out of the interests of the community, but it does have George Bailey end up contemplating suicide. So there is a serious question that we have to ask about how we punish ourselves when our lives don't turn out the way we thought they would and how personally we take blows on the community. So I think it's important to uh, understand George Bailey as that, uh, that polar opposite of Scrooge that is still not um, you know, an ideal to set your, your sights upon. It's like we have to strike a balance between caring for others, loving others, doing good works, and still maintaining a sustainable relationship to our mental and emotional health and our well-being. Absolutely. So in a tangible terms, you should give to charity if you can, yeah. but don't give your rent money to a charity. Absolutely. Because then you'll be on the street. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally 100%. And then you're accepting charity. Yep. So yes. I'm picking up what you're putting down exactly. here. Exactly. And I like it. And I think if I can put a pin on what I think makes a great Christmas movie, and that is the, I would call in a broader, in the broadest way possible, the theme of Christmas mm-hmm. must be present in a great Christmas movie. It's what separates uh, It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol from Jingle All the Way and Home Alone. And Die which, Hard. Which, Jingle All the Way and Home Alone, I like those movies. I'm not yeah, criticizing they're fine. them. Yeah. Actually, I don't like Jingle All the Way. I think. No, it's bad. But I, I really like Home Alone and think it's a fantastic film. I really like Elf and it's a fantastic film. Yeah. You know, and love them. But the difference is the theme of Christmas has to permeate throughout the Christmas movie. And what are the values of Christmas? What makes Christmas such a special time? Because it teaches us that giving is better than receiving. It teaches us that all humans are created equal. And in their equalness, they are worthy of respect and love and dignity by virtue of their birth, no no other reason than that There is something higher than ourselves to which we should be in service to, whether that is Bedford Falls, whether that is your country, whether that is a higher power, the ability to serve the thing higher than yourself and to be grateful of the small things in life because they're the most important. When George is at the end of his rope and he comes home, he's near abusive to his family and it's difficult to watch this good man fall so low that these innocent children yeah. have to take the brunt of something they don't understand and can't contemplate. And that is a, a father at the end of his ropes. And it, we know that's not George. So it teach, it tells us how far he has fallen and how low that he has gotten, that he is actually cruel to his children and near verbally abusive, something we'd never seen from him throughout the rest of this film. And never would have expected. And, and it tells us that even in your lowest moments, The love of a child is still a precious gift. And these are the themes of Christmas. And these are the things that when we reflect at the end of the Christmas season, that we want to keep with us, as you said in the beginning of this podcast, that we want to keep with us, that we want to keep those those values and that feeling and that love and duty and devotion are the best things that we can do. And making money is absolutely important in your life. You know, because you have to have money to have anything and it sucks, but that's the reality. We have to have money. So you do have to go out and make money. 
but it is not the most important part and it should never ever be the yardstick by which you measure your self-worth. Absolutely. Uh, the other theme that this carries as a, uh, you know, a parallel to a Christmas carol is the idea that uh, there is, is dignity even in poverty. There is dignity even in a shared sense of want uh, that even if you live in a drafty old house that you fixed up yourself that was condemned and you have a bunch of children that you can't afford and you you know live your life in a way that uh, feels unsustainable, you can still find a, um, a common love, a common truth in the idea that all humanity shares this dignity. Um, I want to take a moment too, because It's a Wonderful Life is very much George Bailey's story, obviously. Um, But to sing the praises of his wife, Mary Bailey, who I think is just an exceptional character and an exceptional person and who gets a little bit of the short shrift when we talk about It's a Wonderful Life most of the time because we are talking about how selfless George is. But... uh, Behind that selflessness, there is the support of Mary Bailey, and I want her to have a little bit more of her time in the sun, because when we look at uh, George bailing out the community when there's a run on the bank, Mary Bailey is the one to suggest that they use their honeymoon money. She's the first one to pull out the $2,000 and say, how much do you need? Then she's the one who helps to orchestrate with George's friends a honeymoon of their own that they can afford in a drafty old house. She's the character who supports him from day one, who will love him until the day he dies. And she's also the character who gets the community together when he's really in trouble and raises the money that he needs to save the bank and to save himself from going to jail. So while we you know, shout that George Bailey is the richest man in town because of his friends, we can't ignore that this is the woman who raised his children, who fixed up the house herself, who was the first one to suggest that they give up their money, and who is the one who has always carried with her this uh, steadfast belief that love, that human relationships, that uh, you know, care for one another is the most valuable resource you can ever find. That's why she doesn't marry Sam Wainwright, right? She chooses George Bailey because she loves him not because she can marry some guy who has a bunch of money. So I think it's time, it's high time we recognize her as the, you know, the great character that she is. You're here and you are forgetting too that she also does her part in the war effort. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Helping, I think she feeds the GIs. Is she, she does like food drives and things. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's just an amazing person. And you know, as we talk about these characters, we can easily fall into understanding why people saw this movie as so deeply sentimental and so um, averse to their appetites when it came out in the 40s. But we also have to remember what Frank Capra said when he wanted to make this film. And I'm going to butcher this. I'm going to completely paraphrase this quote. But Frank Capra was interested in combating the cynicism of the time and showing us that up next to the horrible news that you would see every day, the death, the destruction, people not coming home from the war, 
uh, people coming from home from the war completely changed. He wanted to show us that even though there was evil in the world, even though there was capacity for horrible atrocities and horrible things, that there was also good. There was also still love and care and gentility and people who were really interesting in, interested in putting others' needs before their own. And as idealistic as it might seem, we need that story more than ever now. In many ways, we have, and when I say we, I mean we, humanity, we have the ability to create the world that we want. And It's a Wonderful Life reminds us that we can create a world where there are Mr. Potters running everything, and, and un undoubtedly there are greedy, cynical people in positions of great wealth and great power doing terrible things to other humans in the name of their great wealth and great power. But there are also plenty of Baileys out there. There are plenty of people sacrificing. There are plenty of people doing amazing things just by loving and caring for those around them and seeing everybody as special and not just a way to make money. I think that is the ultimate uh, lesson that I take away from this beautiful Christmas movie is that what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to be a Bedford Falls or do we want to be a Pottersville? And so often it feels overwhelmingly that Pottersville is what America has become, but it doesn't have to be and it doesn't need to be. And we can and will be able to change that, but it doesn't, we can't meet cynicism with cynicism. We can't meet hopelessness with despair. We can't meet greed with apathy. These are not the ways that we craft and create the Bedford Falls that we all want to be in, and a place where people can look out for each other and themselves. I love it. And until next time, be kind. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. <laughs> <laughs>